0: Hello and welcome to this new episode of The Lies and Styles of Old Hollywood. Today I want to talk about Claudette Colbert and some of you have asked me how I pick my next character, the next actor or actress that I want to portray. And that's why I want to explain why I picked Claudette Colbert. Of course, there are like hundreds and hundreds of actors and actresses that I find fascinating and interesting and that I would love to cover. And I actually have a long list of them, which gets longer and longer every day. But how do I pick the next one? Well... Claudette Colbert is actually linked to the two ladies that I have covered in the last two episodes. One of them was Greta Garbo and the other one was Malena Dietrich. So how is Claudette Colbert linked to these two? On the one hand, Claudette Colbert was rumored to have had an affair or at least a crush on Malena Dietrich, which is not true, but this is where her name came up when I was researching Malena Dietrich. And also Claudette Colbert does have a relationship to Greta Garbo because Claudette Colbert was best friends with Werner Hull who was the daughter of Vernon Herbst who was the psychiatrist of Greta Garbo. So this is why I stumbled across the name of Claudette Colbert during the last couple of weeks and that's why I chose her. So these are the workings of my mind. I just pick up on a name and I make those strange connections and just decide this is the one person. So today it is Claudette Colbert and she is the 12th greatest female star of classic Hollywood according to the American Film Institute. And besides Elizabeth Taylor, she is one of the great actresses to portray Cleopatra on screen and one of the few early movie stars that defied the studio system and worked freelance successfully. As usual, we start at the beginning. So Émilie Claudette Chauchois, called Lily, was actually born in one of the suburbs of Paris, France in 1903. Her mother, Jeanne-Marie, as well as her maternal grandmother, were raised on the Channel Islands. Therefore, they, as well as little Émilie, were fluent in English as well as French. Émilie was called Lily, after Lily Langtree, the most prominent inhabitant of the Isle of Jersey. Lily's father had a pastry shop in Paris and worked as an investment banker on the site. Not very successfully, though. His mother in law suggested him to move his family to America for better fortunes. And so they did. In 1906, when Lily was only three years old, the Shochuan family moved to Manhattan, New York, and her father took on a minor role at the first national city bank. Lily was very interested in the arts when growing up and intended to become an artist, a painter more precisely, or even a fashion designer. She attended Washington Irving High School, which was well known for its arts program. To increase her proficiency in painting, Lily enrolled at the Art Students League of New York additionally and paid her tuition by working in a dress shop. But she not only learned painting during that time, but was also invested in the theatre and made her stage debut in 1921 at age 18. She actually appeared on Broadway in a role in Anne Morrison's The Wild Westcats in 1923. Lily actually met Morrison at a party. And for a Broadway debut, Lily changed her name. From Lily Chauchoin to Claudette, which was her original second name, and her paternal grandmother's last name, Colbert, So this was when Claudette Colbert, the actress, was born and presented to the public. The year after, she signed a five-year contract with Broadway producer Elle Wood and celebrated successes on Broadway. What she did do during this period was to pronounce her name differently, Colbert instead of Colbert, because she really did not like to be typecast as the French maid, which happened during the early days. She did not only succeed on Broadway, though, but also in London's West End. And that is exactly where Leslie Hayward, a producer, found her and pointed her towards silent movies in 1927 with a role in the now-lost film For the Love of Mike. This was Colbert's start in the movie business. Only one year later, in 1928, Colbert signed a contract with Paramount Pictures for the talkies because the studios were searching for new talent that could handle the requirements of acting as well as sound and voice. Colbert was distinctly unconventionally beautiful, with high cheekbones, dark hair, a musical voice, transatlantic and British accent, elegant movements and a captivating personality. Therefore, she was a great choice for Hollywood. Her first movie was The Hole in the Wall. Filming on the East Coast, she was still able to appear on stage on Broadway at the same time. Throughout time, her film roles got bigger, and one of the most important appearances of her career was in Cecil B. DeMille's Sign of the Cross in 1932 as Poppea, the second wife of Roman Emperor Nero and a legendary femme fatale. Her most iconic scene of the movie was her taking a bath in a pool of milk, which, just a little side note, turned sour during filming. And Colbert still had to go into the stinking white mass, which was developing little flakes and lumps, and it stank like hell. And she still did it. So, especially with this kind of knowledge, you need to watch little clips of it. This movie was a straight box office hit. Colbert was averaging four movies a year, and most of them were commercial and critical successes. In 1934, aged 31, Colbert starred in a Frank Capra screwball comedy It Happened One Night with Clark Gable. She actually did not want to do the movie, but agreed when she was offered a significant amount of money, namely $50,000, which today would be roughly $1.1 1. 1 million, as well as a guaranteed shooting time of four weeks, as she wanted to take a planned vacation afterwards. Funnily enough, though, she wasn't even the first choice for this movie either. Capra and Colbert did not like each other very much after filming For the Love of Mike four years earlier. And Colbert was Capra's last choice after seven other stars and starlets turned down the role. And she made filming apparently quite hard for him and the others and even refused to do the film's most famous scene. That is when her character hikes up her skirt and shows a bare leg to hitchhike a ride. And she only agreed to do this scene when Capra brought in a Hollywood hopeful to be her body double. Colbert got rather jealous of the beautiful actress that she finally agreed to film the scene as it was intended in the script. In the end, Colbert received the Academy Award as Best Actress for this role. Only one year later, Colbert played Cleopatra in a movie of the same name. It became the highest grossing movie of that year in the U.S., Her third movie of 1934, which was called Imitation of Life, also proved to be a massive box office success. Claudette Colbert is the only actress to star in three movies that are nominated for the Academy Award for Best Motion Picture in one year. So that was Imitation of Life, Cleopatra and It Happened One Night and she still holds this title until today. So, Colbert rose through the ranks of Hollywood and was the highest paid actress by 1936 and again in 1938. She appeared both in romantic comedies as well as dramas, with leading men such as Melvin Douglas, Fred McMurray, Ronald Coleman, Herbert Marshall and James Stewart. In 1940, she was earning roughly $3 million per movie when corrected for inflation, but This only happened when she learned that this was the sum she could demand for her acting and said goodbye to the studio contracts that offered her way less than that per year. This started her freelance career and the height of her success. Hits like Boomtown, Arise My Love, The Palm Beach Story and So Proudly We Hail followed. David O. Selznick was so impressed by Claudette Colbert that he offered her the role of the mother in Since You Went Away. Which, of course, Colbert initially did not want to accept, because being the mom usually means the end of the younger and more seductive roles. But in the end, she did the part, and it became that year's third highest grossing movie after Bing Crosby's Going My Way and Judy Garland's Meet Me and St. Louis, and it earned Colbert an Academy Award nomination for Best Actress. But... Colbert was not only an active actress, but also lent a pleasing voice to several episodes of radio shows like the Lux Radio Theatre as well as the Screen Guild Theatre from the 1930s until the 1950s. Interestingly, Colbert was the first choice for All About Eve. But when she severely injured her back right before the start of filming while shooting another movie where she insisted to do all her stunts herself, Betty Davis swooped in and got a nomination for this part for Best Actress. So Colbert had great critical and commercial success in movies for both Paramount and RKO throughout the 1940s and ranked in the top 10 money-making stars polled throughout the decade. Her major movie career fizzled out by the early 1950s with only minor, mostly European movies, when Colbert was turning more towards TV and stage work. A contributing factor for this move might have also been her age, as Colbert was nearing her 50th birthday. Amongst other TV engagements, Claudette Colbert struck a deal with CBS to star in several teleplays, guest starred on Robert Montgomery Presents, as well as Playhouse 90. She also hosted the 28th Academy Awards in 1956 and was cast in Dick Powell's St. Cray Theatre. Her last appearance on screen was in 1987 when Colbert was 84 years old in a miniseries The Two Mrs. Cranwells that garnered her a Golden Globe as well as an Emmy Award nomination. In addition to TV, Colbert got back to the stage in several Broadway productions like 1958's The Marriage Go Round that got her Tony Award nomination, and later plays like the irregular verb To Love, The Kingfisher, and Aren't We All. She enjoyed the stage work so much that she actively instructed her agent to end all efforts for movies and television work. But what about Claudette Colbert's style? Claudette Colbert was extraordinary. As I said before, she was very beautiful. She had a very distinct, heart-shaped face with high cheekbones and big brown eyes, which were framed by her curly hair. And her five foot five frame was well proportioned and moved in a very relaxed and elegant manner. And she always seemed a little mysterious. And in contrast to other Hollywood stars of the period, her comedies never featured physical comedy, but only dry observations and comments. So she was very alluring, very mysterious, very different from everybody else. Colbert was also very particular, maybe even a bit self-conscious when it came to her features and how they would photograph. For example, she always wanted the right side of her face turned away from the camera when being filmed in close-up. And that was because of a nose fracture from childhood that showed a little bump on her nose. And this apparently sometimes required movie sets to be redesigned or rearranged. And she also required particular cameramen that she trusted. And she learned about lighting and cinematography in order to ensure that she was photographed in the best possible manner. Some of her co-stars and co-workers on movies were really afraid of her, her expertise and her demands when it came to set design, lighting, cinematography. And she actually did not like color movies and she preferred black and white photography as she believed she looked better that way. And Claudette Colbert had one of the best quotes I have ever read and that was, I know what's good for me. After all, I have been in the Claudette Colbert business longer than anybody. And this kind of explains why she was so adamant in knowing what was good for her and deciding in her own favor. Overall, A. Scott Burke said that she helped define femininity for her generation with her chic manner. Because how Claudette Colbert dressed was important to the public as also showed a 1934 motion picture feature on her dressing style, which makes for a very interesting reading, and I will link it down in the show notes. Colbert explains in it how to get the best fashion out of the money you have available, and she divided fashion items in two parts. The one that can stand economy, so that you can buy at a cheaper level, And those things in that part that you cannot buy at a cheaper level. And the things you can buy cheaper are, for example, hosiery and sometimes hats. And those that should be never cheap and that you should really invest in are shoes and a tailored suit. And gloves should also be of good quality because of the wear they get. You know, we're talking of the times when women wore hats and gloves all the time, which I still think are very glamorous features and very glamorous fashion items. Colbert was originally interested in the arts, as I said before, and in painting and wanted to become a fashion designer, maybe. So she always made sure to be perfectly dressed, which she basically achieved every single time. And her love for fashion was also mirrored in the movie Tomorrow is Forever from 1946, where famous costume designer Jean-Louis was hired to create 18 different wardrobes and outfits for her. So, as you might have heard through the lines, Claudette Colbert loved luxury and a high-level lifestyle. And she gave her second husband, for example, a Beechcraft airplane as a present and purchased a ranch with him in Northern California with show cattle and horses. She had a country house in Palm Springs for the weekends and a Lloyd Wright-designed house in Hornby Hills in L.A. She also drove two expensive cars, a Lincoln Continental and a Ford Thunderbird. And she's also reported to never have asked for the price of things. So she was used to spending money and living the good life. When her second husband, as well as her mother and brother, had died, Colbert divided her time between Manhattan and primarily Barbados, where she employed a housekeeper and two cooks. And she also died in Barbados in 1996 when being 93 years of age. And one of the recipes for a long life that she gave to reporters was a glass of vodka and a vitamin pill per day and no exposure to placing sun. Another funny fact about Claudette Colbert that I picked up when I was researching her, apparently she was not watching where she was going and constantly bumped into things. And that was not only when she was older, but also during her active years when filming. And I thought it was a very nice little feature to know about this wonderful actress. Makes her so much more relatable. But what about the love life and the relationships of Claudette Colbert? So, in 1928, when Colbert was only 25 years of age, she married fellow actor-director Norman Foster. But they kept their marriage a secret, especially from Colbert's mother, and lived in separate homes. Colbert's mother disliked Foster to such an extent that she did not allow him to enter the home she shared with Claudette in L.A., The marriage actually lasted for seven years, never being exposed to Colbert's mother and never living together, before it was divorced in Mexico. During her marriage to Foster, Colbert cheated on him with It Happened One Night co-star Clark Gable, who was also married at that time. The same year of her divorce from Foster, Colbert married Dr. Joel Pressman, who was later professor at UCLA Medical School. But how did these two meet? The Colbert family really disliked her first husband, Norman Foster. And at one family gathering, her brother punched Norman Foster in the nose. And Colbert had to take him to the doctor. And that doctor was Joel Pressman. And those two stayed in touch until the timing was right. And this time Colbert made sure their mother could not interfere and kicked her out of her home. The marriage with Pressman lasted for 33 years until his death from liver cancer in 1968. Another important relationship was with painter Werner Hull, who is the daughter of Vernon Herbst, the psychotherapist of Greta Garbo, and stepdaughter of a Sears Roebuck heiress. In short, Werner Hull was rich and carefree. They met when Colbert was 55 years old and they formed a close friendship. For example, they rented adjacent flats in New York and bought adjacent houses in Barbados. They traveled together and enjoyed the arts together. And there were multiple rumors that they might have been romantically engaged. But there was never any evidence of this. And as I said before, there was also the rumor that Claudette Colbert was having a crush on Marlene Dietrich. The relationship with Werner Hull ended when the former sent Colbert a letter during husband Pressman's last days, indicating that Pressman would kill Colbert in order to take her with him, instead of dying alone. Colbert cut off the friendship immediately and sent back every single gift ever received from Hull. Another important relationship in Claudette Colbert's life was her best friend Helen O'Hagan. She was the retired director of corporate relations at Saks Fifth Avenue. The two met in 1961 and became friends in 1970, when the friendship with Werner Hull had already ended and Pressman, Colbert's husband, had already died. O'Hagan was also the one inheriting most of Colbert's estate upon her death, including several of her homes. Colbert also left a significant amount of money to her housekeeper, as well as to her niece Coco Lewis and to UCLA in the name of her husband. So this is a short portrait of Claudette Colbert, the French-American actress that was once one of the top-earning actresses in the US and of Hollywood cinema. I hope you have enjoyed that and that you might wonder who I pick for next week's episode. I hope you have a wonderful week and I really cannot wait to talk to you next week. Bye.